Bible Fellowship.
Hello, and welcome to Firewheel Bible Fellowship, where we strive to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Here's what's happening at Firewheel. Next Sunday is the fifth Sunday of the month, and we're going to do something a little different. And by that, we mean worship together as the entire Firewheel family. A family room will be available in the great room for those who would like it, as there will be no children's ministry at 11 a.m. Do you have the spring cleaning bug? So do we. Cleanup day is May 6th. It is time to replace some of the shrubs on the north side of the church along Toller Road. Each plant is $58. If you would like to donate to the project, you can go online to firewheelbiblefellowship.com, select giving in the menu, and choose landscaping in the drop-down menu, or write a check to Firewheel Bible Fellowship with landscaping in the memo. Come on out for some lovely spring golf at Waterview Golf Club, located in Rowlett, Texas. Prizes, hole contests, and raffle items are all up for grabs. Lunch will be provided. All proceeds will help support sending kids to summer camp. The cost will be $90 per person. We hope to see you out there. For more information on these or any of our other events, go online to firewheelfellowship.com or you can always check us out on social media.
How are you today? Good? Yeah, welcome to church. Welcome to Firewell. Uh, what did you say? Oh, yeah, it's freezing outside. It makes no sense. Uh, <laughs> um, so who, who came to the worship night? Anybody? Yeah? Yeah, we had a really good time on Friday, man, and uh, appreciate all you guys and all the people that help with that. And so, um, yeah, man, this morning, we're going to do what people do at church. We're going to honor and worship God. Um, we're going to hear a great sermon, and uh, man, we're just going to give Jesus the reverence he deserves. You guys okay with that? All right, so let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, oh, man, we just thank you for your love, man, your grace over us daily. God, I ask that you, uh, man, be with us this morning. I ask that uh, anybody brought any burdens with them this morning, that they just uh, they give it over to you. Um, help us to confess our sin as we worship today, because that's part of it. It's part of us being repentant. Help us to do that this morning. Um, and just help us to uh, want to worship you and to, uh, to love you and to honor you this morning. We love you. And, man, we just thank you for the opportunity to be here every Sunday. In 
Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Go tell three or four people that they're loved this morning.
morning. This morning before the service, we were gathered in the back and Pastor Adrian was praying and one of the things he said 
is that we're here for an audience of one. See, the reason and the only reason we're able to gather here today is because of Jesus Christ himself. Apart from that, we have no other reason to be here. We are here to honor him, and that is the reason that every Sunday that we do what has been done for 2,000 years as we do communion. And it's not just a ritual. It's not just part of the service. We do it to honor Jesus because he chose to do something for us that we are not able to do on our own. We read from the book of John where it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the only one who was able to take away the sins of you and I. That is the purpose of communion. Jesus chose to give up his life for you and I. And around the auditorium, you see that we have the wafers, and those wafers are symbolic of Christ's broken body that he chose to give up for you and I. And the, the juice, likewise, is also symbolic of the blood that he chose to shed for you and I. We read from the book of Luke, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for his death, for his burial, for his resurrection, for his ascension. We thank you that Jesus is alive today, Lord, that we have a living hope. And my prayer, Father, is that this act of communion, that it would be pleasing to you and that it would be honorable to you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. And the communion tables are now open.
If you guys will stand, I've got one more song for you. So this last song, it's going to be a new song for you guys. I'm not sure if you guys have ever heard it before. It's called Glorious Ruins. So if you don't know, this is my wife, Vanessa. So we started this journey of doing worship a long time ago, probably what, 10 something years ago. This was one of the first songs we learned how to play as a worship band. So hope you enjoy it. And, uh, it's the same thing a lot, but I think you guys will grab onto it. So.
to worship you, God. God, just uh, oh, give us ears to listen this morning. Um, Dr. Weaver, give him the, the words to speak. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your love over us daily. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Y'all have a good day.
Good morning, Firewheel family. How's everybody doing? Good to see you all. Uh, if I've not had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Adrian Pina. I have the opportunity to serve as the transitional pastor here at Firewheel. We're glad that you decided to worship with us this morning. Thank you for all of you joining us online. I'm excited to be able to hear God's word and to be able just to sit with you all today as we have a very special guest, Dr. Paul Weaver. Uh, Dr. Weaver and Jill were my neighbors for a few months uh, over in Swindoll Tower at DTS. And um, hopefully many of y'all got to hear Dr. Weaver last week. I'm really excited about what he's going to share. And so if you have not had a chance to pick up one of these handouts, um, so there's going to be, those of you who like to fill in the blanks, there's going to be a lot of different uh, good stuff that you're going to receive today. So go ahead and raise your hand, and uh, our guest services attendants would love to give you one of these handouts for today as you can follow along with today's message, but I won't take up so much more of our time. Uh, Dr. Weaver is not only a professor, he's a podcaster, he's a missionary, he served as a, a school president. I mean, he's done uh, quite a few different things, and one of the things I know about him, as I've got to call him friend, is that he loves the Word of God, he loves interacting with people and being able to share and open up the Word of God, and he takes it as a great honor to be able to do so. So I'm really glad that he is here today. So will you help me introduce and give a warm firewheel welcome to Dr. Paul Weaver. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Good morning. It's a great privilege to be back with you last week. I'm so thankful you're so kind and gracious to us and gave us a wonderful reception. And so we're very pleased to be back with you again uh, this morning. Looking forward to last week, you might recall, I, I, as a professor, if I gave a pop quiz this morning, I think 99% of you would be able to give all four answers to the question I posed last week, and we focused on what makes Christianity unique from all other world religions. And the four answers we gave to that, what makes Christianity unique from all other world religions, the first one was the message of Christ. Jesus Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The message of Christ, it's an exclusive message. We looked at the character of Christ. Right? Jesus Christ was identical with his message. There's no other human being that ever lived on this planet that's ever been identical with their message. We looked at the message of Christ, the character of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. We recently uh, celebrated the resurrection of Christ. No other religion can duplicate that event, the most important event of human history. And then finally, the provision of Christ, the provision of Christ. All other world religions, all about man doing, working their way to heaven, if you will, and of course, none of the religions will succeed in that. Uh, all other world religions about do, 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 Christianity is about done, done, done. Right? Uh, isn't that a great message? Uh, the uniqueness of Christianity. And so as I had the opportunity to have a second week with you, I was thinking through what I should uh, address in the second uh, session. I was thinking about doing what makes the Christian Bible unique from all other religious writings. And so um, that was my initial direction to kind of have a, a unity between the two different messages. And then I decided that we'd focus on one passage and show from that passage the uniqueness of, 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 of Scripture, excuse me, the uniqueness of Scripture from this wonderful passage in Daniel 5 on the Feast of Belshazzar that uh, provides for us some great biblical archaeology that affirms the historicity of Scripture. 
And so we're going to look at some of those uh, archaeological discoveries that affirm the historicity and that this Bible that we study is worthy of your time and your investment and study. And so would you like to do that with me today? And so take your copy of the scriptures, whether pixel or paper, and turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. But actually, even before we get to Daniel chapter 5, stop in Daniel chapter 1 because I want to provide a historical context. The historical context we need in chapter 1. The historical context, chapter 1, verse 1. And we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Now, Jehoiakim was the 17th king of Judah, 17th king. This is a long time into the reign of the kings. And so the golden age of the United Kingdom, uh, really advanced by King David, and then even expanded and, um, and fortified by King Solomon, that's a distant memory, this United Kingdom. And we remember in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, this covenant that God has made with his people. This is actually, Deuteronomy means second law or the repetition or repeating of this covenant as they prepare to go into the land of Israel, of Canaan. In Deuteronomy 28, we read, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statues, with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And so the United Kingdom, by the time we read Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, is a distant memory the, the glory days of this United Kingdom under David and Solomon is a foregone, uh, pa- far uh, past in their memories. Due to re- their repeated rebellion and covenant violations, God disciplined his chosen people. And just as he promised in Deuteronomy 28, okay, by sending them into exile at the hands of the Gentile nations. And so the nation that was comprised of Israel, the ten northern uh, tribes in the north, and the civil war that took place, the ten northern tribes of the the north known as Israel, and the two southern tribes known as Judah, uh, these two kingdoms have been divided by civil war will also be taken into captivity. First, the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes known as Israel, will be taken into captivity under Assyrian, uh, under the Assyrian rule. This, the threat at the time, the ten northern tribes collectively known as Israel were taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. And then the southern tribes were, remained there for another hundred plus years, but they too will be taken into captivity. The two southern tribes, collectively known as Judah, will be taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And that's where we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, that Daniel and his three friends are taken into captivity around 605 B.C. 
that Daniel and his three friends are taken to captivity, 605 BC, and then there's going to be another captivity later, another exile at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar in 597. This is where Ezekiel the prophet and 10,000 Hebrews are taken into captivity as well. And then there's a third exile of the, Jude, of the uh, kingdom of Judah, the final deportation. And this is when the destruction of Jerusalem takes place, and this is when the temple is destroyed and will remain ruined until Nehemiah is able to return and um, rebuild the temple and the temple walls under Haggai and Zechariah, then Nehemiah the walls. So this is the, theolo- this is the historical context that we read in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. The ten northern tribes have been taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire, and now the two southern tribes of Judah are going to be taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. Well, this is the historical context, but Daniel also provides for us a theological context. A theological context here in verse 2. Notice it says, the Lord gave... The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand, to, into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Daniel's very specific and very clear that God is at work in Daniel chapter 1. That this relates back to Deuteronomy 28, where the nation of Israel has gone after and followed the role of a harlot following after the nations around them and the gods that they worship. And that God is faithful to his promises, even the promise to discipline them when they failed. And so the Lord gave, this is the theological explanation. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar had this incredible military power, although they were the world threat at the time. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar was this amazing uh, strategist, Uh, incredible in his strategy towards attacking the known world, Daniel makes it clear, the Lord gave. The Lord gave. He didn't even just allow it, but the Lord gave. And we see three times in chapter 1, the theological explanation. We see also in verse 9, now God granted Daniel favor. Again, God is at work. God gave Daniel favor and his three friends in before his leaders, as far as the meat offered the, from the king's um, table that they did not have to participate in. The Lord granted Daniel favor. Then a third time, verse 7, as for these four youths, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God gave them knowledge. So Daniel's very clear in chapter 1 that although it may appear that things are following natural orders around us and that Nebuchadnezzar is just the next world empire and world power of the day. Daniel makes it evident and clear that God gave. God granted. God gave. This is the theological explanation. Although Nebuchadnezzar thinks his God provided this victory, Daniel makes it clear. Yahweh, the Lord, gave Jehoiakim and the nation of Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of the Babylonians because of their unfaithfulness to their covenant responsibilities. This is the theological explanation. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way, God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans 
in the Holy Land and disgracing his name. Notice also, I mentioned verse 2, the, in the second half of verse 2, speaks of the vessels of the house of God. This is going to become important when we get to chapter 5, Belshazzar's feast, right? The vessels are taken by Nebuchadnezzar. This is a way to brag, right? This is what they would do. They would take the vessels of the, the temples of the people they would conquer, and they would take them and put them in their God's temple to say, our God's more powerful than your God, and our people more powerful than your people. And so Nebuchadnezzar took these vessels with them into Babylon. Speaking of Babylon, a city spoken of so much in Scripture, if this is indeed inspired and inerrant, and it is, then we'd expect there to be some archaeological remains of this ancient city. It's spoken of throughout Scripture all the time, isn't it? And that's exactly what we find. And in fact, this is one reason I love biblical archaeology. Um, my dissertation was in the field of biblical archaeology, and Nelson Gluck, an early archaeologist, put it this way, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted or, or um, disputed or conflicted with, biblical theology, with the biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. In fact, there's a magazine called The Bible and the Spade, and the idea is, and the truth is, you could read the biblical description and you could go to the land of the Bible, the biblical lands, and you could take a spade with you, a shovel, if the Israel antiquity authorities allowed you, which they won't, but if they would, you could go and dig and find things described in the biblical text. Time and time again, archaeology affirms doesn't contradict the biblical text. So what do we find in Babylon? Well, here is Robert Coldaway. He was a German, uh, he represented the German Oriental Society and excavated there for 18 years. And ancient Babylon is in modern-day Iraq. In fact, some of you might recall Saddam Hussein had dreams of grandeur to rebuild Babylon. He was rebuilding a palace in ancient Babylon for himself. And you can see that even in this picture here. Robert Caldaway dismantled and reassembled the Ishtar Gate. He reconstructed it in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin, Germany. You can go there and see it today. It's incredible. It's mammoth. It's huge. And this is just the first of two levels of this Ishtar Gate. And there were many of these gates. And this, this city of Babylon was incredibly fortified. You can see why Belshazzar is going to have a misplaced faith in the protection of his walls. It's mammoth. In fact, let me, this next slide, I'll put my torso right there. We were there, I cut off my legs because they're white chicken legs in my shorts, so you don't want to see that, but you can barely see me. There I am on the right compared to this huge, huge gate. That's to size. And here is an artistic rendition of the second layer. You can see the second level. The, the first level could fit in the Pergamum Museum. The second level couldn't. It's so huge. And on the way to the Ishtar Gate is this processional way. 
it's huge. It's amazing. It's uh, the, the, the feat of, from human perspective, of Nebuchadnezzar and building this city, this ancient city, and then Belshazzar, his dis- descendant, ruling over it. And this processional way, my wife, as before I came up here, said, you're not going to show that picture of me, are you? I said, yes, I am. <laughs> this was when we were still missionaries in Hungary, and this is before Caroline, B.C., before our first child, before Caroline, and there's a baby bump there, so actually Caroline can be visible there. But she's being her, striking her cute pose, right? Well, the Euphrates River goes right down the middle of ancient Babylon. So they had 20 years worth of food and an endless supply of water because during those days, enemies would come around the city and they would besiege it and they would cause you to have to leave your city, either starve in your city or leave the protection of the gates to battle. Well, they had 20 years worth of food in the city of Babylon and they had this endless supply of water. This brings to light everything we read in chapter 5 of the Feast of Belshazzar. But before we get to chapter 5 of the Feast of Belshazzar, we've, we've stepped, established the historical context and the theological context, but Belshazzar. What about Belshazzar? The problem is nobody named Belshazzar ever existed. Well, at least that's what skeptics said. Those who are hostile to the biblical record said, this is just a figment of our imagination. This is just the Jewish people creating a myth, a legend that never really existed. And this Belshazzar never really existed. Well, you see, a discovery has indeed silenced the critics. Critical scholars at one time regarded Belshazzar as a fictitious character, just a, a, a legendary figure because they would only accept what's in the Bible and only that which is confirmed by extra-biblical sources. They don't treat the Bible as an ancient literary work like every other ancient work that they examine. They don't trust it the same way they trust any other extra-biblical source. So the archaeological discovery known as the Nabonidus Cylinder silenced the critics. It proved them wrong. We'll talk about it, and you can watch an entire video on it, about an eight-minute video I've done on this along with other archaeological discoveries. But it's a clay cylinder. It was discovered in 1854 in ancient Mesopotamian city of Ur, also the homeland of Abraham, right? It's a clay cylinder. It records details of the repairs by Nabonidus made to a temple of a Babylonian god. If you want something to survive antiquity, you can't write on paper. Paper turns to dust. If you want something to survive antiquity, you etch it in stone or you put it in clay and put that clay in an oven to make it hard. And that's what these are, these archaeological discoveries. This is a clay cylinder that speaks of Nabonidus. A portion of it reads, As for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon and Belshazzar, the eldest son, my oldest son and offspring. This archaeological discovery confirms what we knew to be true before this discovery was ever made, that Belshazzar was a real individual and that chapter 5 really did occur. 
It confirms the biblical record. And there indeed was a king by the name of Belshazzar. He's the son of Nabonidus. And you can view it today in the British Museum. So, Daniel chapter 5. We've looked at a theological context or the historical context. We've looked at the theological explanation as to why they're taken in captivity. We've looked at the, some of the archaeological record as to the city of Babylon and how powerful of a city it was and gives us great understanding as to why Belshazzar had this misplaced confidence in the walls of Babylon. So turn with me to chapter 5 in Daniel's book, Daniel's prophecy. Chapter 5, verse 1, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. This is what's going to happen here. We're going to see um, Darius the Mede is on the rise. The Babylonian empire was at its height, height under Nebuchadnezzar, and now it's starting to descend in power. Now we have a new threat coming to power, and that's the Medo-Persian Empire. And Darius the Mede is on the march. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? <laughs> he has a feast in this fortified city with a thousand of his leading individuals. And in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, uh, they have this misplaced confidence that they are going to be protected by their walls and the Ishtar gate and all the other gates and this 20-year supply of food and this endless supply of water. They were well equipped for a siege. And we see in chapters 5, 1 to, uh, 1 to 4, the defilement of the temple vessels. What happens here? Belshazzar gets drunk. And what does Belshazzar do? He makes a bad, bad decision. Verse 2. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, I think better translation would be forefather. The word translate has the idea of uh, forefather, not direct son of, but a descendant because Nabonidus was Belshazzar's father, and there's a couple between Nabonidus and and Nebuchadnezzar. But here we have Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his forefather, had taken out of the temple. What temple? The temple in Jerusalem. So Belshazzar pulls out these, these vessels used in the worship of Yahweh and uses them in a drunken state of debauchery His concubines are present, probably a a great deal of immorality taking place as well. You can't think of a worse way to treat the vessels of Yahweh in his arrogance. Did he know about Daniel chapter 2 and the dream that his forefather Nebuchadnezzar had, this head of gold and this coming empire of silver, the arms and chest and the legs of bronze and the feet uh, legs of iron and the feet of, of clay and iron, representing different empires that the Babylonian Empire will not continue forever, may very well have. Did he know about his father's forefather Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance in becoming humiliated as an animal in chapter 4 of Daniel? He certainly knew that. We read that in Daniel 5. But with all this arrogance, Nebuchadnezzar, I think, is putting his hand in the fist in the face of God and saying, I know Darius is on the rise. He's not going to penetrate this fortified city. 
There's no way he's going to get beyond these double-lined walls and these huge gates, and we have 20 years' worth of food and endless supply of water. And so what does he do? He doesn't go and get the vessels from other gods and other peoples that they've destroyed. He goes and gets the vessels of Yahweh, and he uses them in worship, in drunkenness and debauchery. He did the most desecrating thing possible with these vessels. Then Daniel chapter 5, verse 5, we read, Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that did writing. This could come right out of Star Trek, right? This sounds like a science fiction story, but this is real, right? This is no science fiction. This is a real hand comes out of nowhere and writes three words on this wall. And the three words are mene, mene, the same word repeated twice, mene, mene, tekel, eparsin. Then the king's face, verse 6, grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. This arrogant man proud in the kingdom he rules, proud in his forefather who built this fortified city and these fortified gates, becomes a coward because of what he saw, this supernatural event taking place in his own palace. Verse 7, Belshazzar makes another mistake that his forefather Nebuchadnezzar made. Instead of going to Daniel, he calls all the uh, all the magicians, all the wise men, all the diviners in the empire and asks them to interpret these three words. And he promises them that he will put a, a purple clothing on them, which represents royalty, and he'll put a necklace around their head, around their neck, and he'll make them the third in power in the entire kingdom. Third. Why not second? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. He promises his wise men and his magicians, if you can interpret this, I will make you third in power. Well, they can't do it, can they? Verses 8 and 9, they fail miserably. But his queen, in verses 10 and 11, the queen reminds Belshazzar that there is one. Remember Daniel? And in her words, in her perspective, she says, he has the spirit of the holy gods on him. Invite Daniel to come and interpret these three words. So he does. Daniel comes, and then we have the interpretation by Daniel. Uh, the three words are mene, tekel, and peres. And Daniel comes and interprets these three words. But first he retells the story of, Neb of Nebuchadnezzar. He retells what happened in chapter 4 and the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar, who was this proud man, this arrogant man who God makes him into a subhuman. He was this superhuman, perceived to be like a god, became a subhuman and lived amongst the animals and ate the grass. That's in chapter 4. So after recounting this events that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar would happen, after recounting these events to Nebuchadnezzar's four, uh, descendant, Belshazzar, then Daniel says, you've followed the same error that your forefather Nebuchadnezzar followed. You have become arrogant and proud as well. Verse 21, 
speaks of how Nebuchadnezzar was driven away to eat the grass, the wild grass, and to live like an animal. And was challenged until he, in his humility, finally said, the most holy God is God, the God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so after Daniel recounts this story, this historical event concerning Belshazzar's descendant, uh, forefather, rather, Nebuchadnezzar, then Daniel interprets the dream. But I should remind you that not only did uh, Belshazzar promise his wise men to become third in power, now he promises Daniel. If Daniel can interpret these three words, handwriting on the wall, that Daniel will become third in power. Verse 21, Daniel says, Most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. In other words, Belshazzar, you are not who you think you are. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar's descendant, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. You knew all this. You knew what happened to your forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, and yet you still in your pride and your arrogance have, have taken these vessels out and, and, and done a horrendous thing, getting drunk with them and involved in immorality, exercising them. Daniel's saying, you knew the folly of your forefather, and yet you followed him in his folly. You did the same foolish thing. And then Daniel proceeds to interpret these four, these three words. First word, mene, means numbered. The Aramaic word mene means numbered. God has numbered your kingdom and has put an end to it. That's what Daniel's saying, interpreting this, these three words, these, the handwriting on the wall. And by the way, that number is one, isn't it? Because that very night, Darius will conquer him. God has numbered your kingdom and it's coming to an end. The second word, tekel. Daniel uh, interprets it and says, God has found you deficient. The word means weighed. God has weighed you and found you morally deficient. And that is very true. And then the final word, peres, means broken or divided. God will divide your kingdom and give it to the Medes and the Persians. This is the interpretation of these three words that Daniel gives Belshazzar. And what happens? Chapter 5, verse 29. Belshazzar keeps his promise. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave orders that they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority over the third ruler as the third ruler in the kingdom. So three times, Belshazzar said, you, if you, he promises his wise men, if you can interpret these three words, I will make you third in power. Then he tells Daniel, if you can interpret these three words, I will make you third in power. And now Daniel interprets these three words and he makes him third in power. We've been scratching our heads, scholars, for a long time till a, recent, uh, till a discovery of the Nabonidus Chronicle. We looked at the Nabonidus Cylinder that mentions Belshazzar by name. The Nabonidus Chronicle also mentions Belshazzar by name. But it also gives a clue as to why third in power. You know, we believed it 
we took the Bible at face value, and generations took the Bible at face value, that Daniel was put third in power, but the dis- discovery of the Nabonidus uh, Chronicle doesn't tell us the what, but the why. The Nabonidus Chronicle indicates that Nabonidus went down to Arabia, and he put his son in charge of the Babylonian Empire. This tablet summarizes the main events of each year of Nabonidus' rule from 556 until 530. It states that Nabonidus resided in Arabia for 10 years and left his son Belshazzar to reign in his place. We knew the what. Daniel was offered and made third in power, although it only lasted for one day. But why? Because Nabonidus was number one, Belshazzar was number two, and Daniel was then number three. The Bible, once again, stands up to scrutiny, and we can take it at face value, whether we know the why or not. And so the fulfillment of this dream takes place in verses 30 to 31. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. From human standpoint, Babylon was an impregnable, double-walled city with flowing water and a 20-day food supply. Babylon falls to the Medo-Persian Empire overnight. (laughs) Not 20 years, (laughs) not one week, not even a couple days, but overnight. This was such an incredible happening that goes against all of logic of human reasoning at the time that many different ancient writings record the fall of Babylon, including Herodotus, Xenophon, Berossus, the Babylonian Chronicles, and the Cyrus Cylinder, all describe the fall of mighty Babylon. What happened? The Persians diverted the Euphrates River, which ran right through Babylon, ancient Babylon, that flowed through the city, allowing them to march into the city on the dry riverbed. Three applications, and we're done. Application number one, God hates pride, doesn't he? God hates pride, but loves humility. God hates pride, but loves humility. We learn in Proverbs 16, 5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart, but he's sure of this, they will not go unpunished. James 4, 6, God resists the proud and gives grace unto the humble. I don't know about you, hopefully I can speak on your behalf. I don't want God to resist me. I don't want to be in opposition to God. I want to be a a humble heart. I want to be a vessel used for God's glory. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Why does God hate pride so much? Have you thought about it? I'm sure you can come up with other reasons to add to this, but I've thought of five reasons. One, pride resulted in the fall of Satan. Remember this? Satan says, I will be like the Most High. He was put in a very important position as a key angel, and yet he wasn't happy with that position. I will be like the Most High God. I will be the Most High God. Pride resulted in the fall of Satan. Pride resulted in the fall of mankind, humanity. If you eat of this fruit, you will know right from wrong. You will be like the gods. 
Pride steals the credit only God deserves. Anytime we become boastful and proud, we're stealing God's glory. We're stealing God's credit, aren't we? Pride is related to all other sins. Think about this way. Every time we sin, we're saying, I know better than God. Every time we choose to do what God tells us not to or choose to do things that God tells us not to do, we're saying, I know better. What I want is more important than what God wants. Finally, you can add to these, but I think a fifth reason, pride is the main deterrent to salvation. To come to faith in Christ requires humility, doesn't it? And that requires recognizing we fail to live up to this perfect standard. Maybe someone here today is this place where you're struggling with this pride. You, you know you failed to live up to that standard, but you're not willing to humble yourself. I beg of you, make that decision. I think of in, in Hungary when we're there, it's so hard to reach 50, 60, 70-year-olds. And you, I think through that. Why is it so difficult for an older person to place their faith in Christ and not recognize it's pride? You have to recognize you've been wrong for 50, 60, 70 years. It's hard. Placing our faith in Christ requires humility. I think God hates pride for these five reasons, probably many others. God hates pride but loves humility. A second application for us today, there's no wall high enough, no moat wide enough, no gate deep enough, no city fortified enough to protect Belshazzar or protect the wicked from the judgment of God. We look around us and we see, seems like wickedness was prevailing, right? But we're encouraged. Did you know that the book of Daniel is one of the favorite books of the persecuted church? Why? Because it reminds us that God will be successful. God will install his kingdom. And all the wicked nations of the earth will one day be judged. And all the wicked rulers of the earth will one day be judged. There's no wall high enough, no moat wide enough, no gate deep enough, no city fortified enough to protect from the judgment of God upon the wicked. And finally, the handwriting on the wall reminds us that when God says he will do something, it's as if it's already happened. That's common usage in our everyday English because of Daniel 5, isn't it? I'm going to quit my job because the handwriting's on the wall. They're going to fire me. The handwriting's on the wall, a common expression. The true meaning of the handwriting's on the wall points to the fact that God's will will happen. There's no stopping the purposes and plans of God. The kingdom that God is going to install will indeed occur. The theocratic kingdom, this, this, this ruling of Christ on the earth will take place. Just as the fall of Babylon happened, we can be certain that one day we will be gathered to meet the Lord in the air. The handwriting's on the wall. God has promised it, and it's as if, as certain as it's already happened. One day, the enemies of God, the wicked, will be judged. The handwriting is on the wall. God's promised it, and it's as certain as if it's already happened. One day, the stone of Daniel chapter 2, remember the stone made without human hands that expands to fill the whole earth, that destroys the statue representing all of these different empires? One day, the stone of Daniel 2 that's made without human hands will indeed occur. It will fill the whole earth, this worldwide empire where Christ will rule with righteousness from the throne of David. The handwriting's on the wall. God said it, 
and it's certain as if it's already happened. The Son of Man, spoken of Daniel 7, coming in the clouds, who will, who will come to the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14, will establish a kingdom. The handwriting's on the wall. God has said it, and it's as certain as if it's already happened. We get to rule and reign with Christ. Isn't that amazing promise? Romans 8, 16 and 17, you're heirs and co-heirs with Christ. God's promised it. It's as certain as if it's already happened. The handwriting's on the wall. And a thousand-year reign will be just the kickoff party for eternity future. The handwriting's on the wall. It's as certain as if it's already happened. I don't know which of these applications are relevant to you this morning, maybe all of them. During times of difficulty, it's incredibly encouraging to know that God has promised and what he promised will come to fruition. We need to be humble. We don't want to stand in opposition to God like Nebuchadnezzar, like Belshazzar. The wicked one day will be judged and the faithful will be rewarded. So don't grow weary in doing good. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that the writing is on the wall, that you will fulfill what you've promised. We thank you for the negative example of Belshazzar and his forefather Nebuchadnezzar. Help us to be humble. Help us to be your servants, to be used for your glory. We thank you for that incredible privilege to think about that. And as we look around the world that we live in, we, we see evil, we see atrocities, we see wickedness, but that points us to look ahead. And we, thank, we, we are thankful, we praise you that this won't go on forever, that in your timing, you'll return and your kingdom will be established and will be one of righteousness where wickedness will be thwarted and judged and, and those who are righteous, those who have placed their faith in Christ and those who are serving Christ will be rewarded. Help us to not grow weary in doing good. Until then, in your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Weaver. At this time, we're going to take an opportunity to respond and to be able to pray and to be able to worship. So this is not spectator time. Remember, what we do on Sunday is a holy thing. And when we get to interact with God's word, sometimes God's word challenges us. Sometimes there are things that we come into this place. We need prayer. We need somebody to walk alongside of us. We're going to take the opportunity to do that now. I'm going to, introduce, I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward. And so we're going to sing. We're going to worship. Uh, and I pray that whether you decide to sit or whether you decide to stand, uh, think about what you just heard. Respond that way. If there's something on your heart, if there's some way that we could pray for you, whatever the need may be, then please give an opportunity to one of these prayer partners to be able to express love towards you and be able to pray with you. So let's take an opportunity to do that now and to be able to worship and respond to what the Spirit is doing.
it is to be able to worship and to praise him, isn't it? Y'all may be seated. We're going to go take an opportunity to worship the Lord through giving at this time. If it's your first time here at Firewall, we are really glad that you decided to worship with us this morning. We'd love to be able to connect with you and get to know you a little bit better. So as you exit the auditorium, there is a connection center out in our lobby. One of our guest services attendants would love to be able to give you a special gift for worshiping with us. And then also seeing how we can come alongside of you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey and see how we can serve you as a church. Uh, so we'd love to be able to shake your hands and say hello. So please come on by and stop by. We'd love to be able to meet you. I'm going to go ahead and ask the ushers to come forward as we uh, take an opportunity to worship through giving. God loves a cheerful giver. It's great to be able to give to the work of the kingdom. I'd love to say that it costs no money to do ministry on earth, but it does. But money is a tool that we get to use for the kingdom uh, to be able to see God's work done. And I thank you all for your gracious giving. And so let's pray that God would just bless our offering. So, Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to give. I pray that you would bless the gift and the giver, that you would cause it to multiply, that you allow us to steward well the resources that you have given us to be able to reach this community and to be able to worship. Uh, Lord, I pray, and it's so beautiful that you give us so much. And, Lord, we just give back to you ultimately what all belongs to you because, Lord, you are the source of our life and our hope and our all. And, Lord, we want everybody to know this great message of redemption. And so, Lord, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, and welcome to Firewheel Bible Fellowship, where we strive to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Here's what's happening at Firewheel. Next Sunday is the fifth Sunday of the month, and we're going to do something a little different. And by that, we mean worship together as the entire Firewheel family. A family room will be available in the great room for those who would like it, as there will be no children's ministry at 11 a.m. Do you have the spring cleaning bug? So do we. Cleanup day is May 6th. It is time to replace some of the shrubs on the north side of the church along Toller Road. Each plant is $58. If you would like to donate to the project, you can go online to firewheelbiblefellowship.com, select giving in the menu, and choose landscaping in the drop-down menu, or write a check to Firewheel Bible Fellowship with landscaping in the memo. Come on out for some lovely spring golf at Waterview Golf Club, located in Rowlett, Texas. Prizes, hole contests, and raffle items are all up for grabs. Lunch will be provided. All proceeds will help support sending kids to summer camp. The cost will be $90 per person. We hope to see you out there. For more information on these or any of our other events, go online to firewheelfellowship.com, or you can always check us out on social media. All right, family, if you'll stand, we'll go ahead and pray our benediction and get you dismissed. Next week, we will reconvene our table series. We have two more weeks in that. I'm really excited to actually pick that up and... Uh, be able to engage in that again. I know many of you have enjoyed that. And I've been enjoying bringing that message series to you. So look forward to next week. So may the Lord go before you to light your path and to give you direction. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you. And may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father in heaven always grant to you character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. We love you all so much. You are dismissed. We'll see you next week.